0: Monica Samuels of Fine Connections on the show. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: Nice to have you here.
1: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in South Los Angeles County. You know, people always ask me if I'm crazy because I moved to New York and I prefer New York. I think I like nice weather, but I think that New York has always been a place I've felt more at home in. Um it's more more international. I think LA is great. It's very comfortable. I like visiting there, but it, I certainly prefer it here.
0: You seem like a driven type who gets a lot done in a day.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Right? I mean, probably.
1: Yeah, I try. Um, I've always really liked to be busy and um, almost probably to a fault because I just kind of rather than thinking about a plan, I just kind of like to keep myself really busy and see where it takes me. But it's uh, worked so far.
0: What was your family
1: like? Well, I'm kind of an only child. I have two half-sisters and a half-brother, but we have about a 25-year age difference between us. So I grew up as the only child in the house with my parents. And uh, my mother is born and raised in Japan, and then she moved to Australia for a while, and then to the U.S. So she loves to travel. And my father was born and raised in California, never lived more than 10 miles from where he was born. And, um, but 13 years ago, my parents both retired in Thailand. Oh, okay. So that was a big change.
0: What was it like in the house? I mean, growing up. I mean...
1: My mother was a simultaneous interpreter and it was very important for her for me to be bilingual. So I grew up, I had a Japanese nanny when I was growing up. We only spoke, we tried to only speak Japanese at home even though that didn't really work with my father. And I went to Tokyo every summer when I was growing up. And Oh, you did? Yes.
0: What was that? I mean, it must have been very different than L.A.
1: It was very different from L.A. I grew up, with a lot of half-Japanese kids as friends, so it was a little less, a little less foreign than it would sound going uh, as far as the culture shock going from LA to Tokyo. But it was it was very different. And um, my dad is Jewish, and so I spent a little time in the Jewish community in Hebrew school as well. So it was definitely a, a big melting pot kind of within my family.
0: I mean, especially traveling regularly between the two, you must have seen a lot of contrasts and comparisons in your own mind. I feel like kids are more aware of that stuff.
1: That's true. Um, I did see a lot of contrasts, even though New York is much more multicultural than L.A. L.A. seems very multicultural compared to Tokyo. And so it was... I definitely felt like I stuck out a lot in Tokyo, being half Japanese, and I've never really looked that Japanese growing up. And so I think it was very hard to kind of be under the radar in Japan and the culture, especially over 20 years ago, the culture was really kind of blend in as much as possible. So understanding that and kind of being exposed to that was interesting. And, um, and then going, you know, in Japanese school in LA, it was a lot of kids like me, but then in an American school, I definitely stood out. I grew up um, I had a Japanese name for the first part of my life, and then I my mom changed my name, and um, now so it was it was very. How did
0: that go down? Exactly?
1: <laughs> well, I um I was getting really frustrated being the only kid in American school with a name that no one could pronounce, and then the only kid in a Japanese school with a last name that no one could pronounce, and so I just kind of um.
0: You wanted one place you could go. I
1: wanted to fit in somewhere, and that's probably why I like New York so much because. For a Japanese Jewish person, New York is kind of the perfect place in the world to be. And so I, um, yeah, and so that was part of the name change.
0: The Japanese idea of how to raise a kid or growing up as a kid is different than the American idea sometimes.
1: That's very true. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because I was just talking to a colleague of mine who just moved his family from Japan to America and his kids are at very pivotal years of growing up. And it was a decision that he made partially because he wanted them to speak better English, but also because he really wanted his kids not to feel afraid to speak up for themselves and not to feel afraid to have an opinion that was different. And, um, I think that
0: are they kids that are male or female?
1: Both. There's a boy and a girl and they're both half Japanese and the father is American.
0: Cause it seems tougher for girls to speak up. Usually. Absolutely. No.
1: Absolutely. Um, My mother was pretty rebellious. She left Tokyo in her early 20s. And she grew up in a pretty conservative family in Tokyo. And she grew up in the 1940s. So back then, it was considered pretty insane to leave. And so my mother always raised me to speak up for myself. And she always really got impatient and frustrated with being fake, which is kind of a big big part not being fake isn't such a part of the culture but kind of doing the right thing they and might always, call it
0: manners right right
1: manners and knowing what type of gift to bring when you're not, supposed to show up somewhere and showing up at the right time and doing all these things and I'm much more that way than my mother is but she certainly pushed me in the other direction which I I'm very grateful for now how did you end up in New York well my parents had retired and moved to Thailand and my oldest sister, my half-sister, was living in New York, and I'd always wanted to live in New York, and I didn't really have a plan. I was working in restaurants in L.A., and my brother-in-law actually jumped on the phone with me one night when I was talking to my sister about what I was going to do with my life, and he was so annoyed because we'd had this conversation 20 times, and he said, just move in with us, you'll figure it out, and I just kind of did within a month.
0: And he lives in New York?
1: Yes, they still live in New York. They live upstate now, but...
0: What did you end up doing? Uh,
1: While I was trying to figure it out, I got a job at Sushi Samba. This was in early 2004. And um, back then, it was a very happening restaurant. It was sex in the city and always crowded. And they had this rooftop. And it was kind of in this time where people would spend crazy money on sake. And it was the first place to really have a big sake list. And so I got a job as a server there, which was supposed to be a short time arrangement. And... I don't know what happened three and a half years later i was still working at sushi samba and i had gotten so many opportunities working there i um was a manager i became the general manager of their chicago location i eventually took over the sake program and the owner of sushi samba shimon bokoza he just had this he really believed in me and he gave me so many opportunities and he really thought that it would be great to have this kind of person representing sake who was young and a little more relatable and not just a Japanese person in a kimono. And so um, they have a very strong PR team. And so through a lot of different press and media outreach programs, I started just really kind of promoting sake full time.
0: So it kind of played in both. They were doing strong business. They needed to maybe put a younger face on it. They're super popular because of the TV show, which is mostly focused on girls, right? And you're female and it right. was probably a good fit and he's Israeli, right?
1: Right. So yeah, in, in many ways it was a good fit. And I think that people had had sake before and it's certainly, you know, sake's certainly been in movies since way back, but I think people still thought about it as Japanese moonshine or, you know, this beverage that you drink really hot and more of a ceremonial ritual thing instead of, Oh, sake is delicious. And so Especially back then, over 10 years ago, we really felt like people had a lot to learn and finding a way to make it catchy and approachable and fun was, I think, very important back then. I really think that they were paved the way for a lot of sake producers.
0: What did that feel like for you as you're getting into sake?
1: It was really nice to be able to have it be my choice to have more of a connection to Japanese culture And, you know, since my parents had been living in Thailand and they hadn't really exercised any opinions really about what I should do or really kind of pushed me in any direction to stay connected to my Japanese heritage, it was really nice to have the opportunity to and really nice to realize that I still spoke Japanese and to go to Japan and feel like I had this opportunity to really help people because Japanese producers are so humble. And I think the understanding how to market to such a different consumer was just really not translating for a lot of people. And so to be able to, to be able to bring something like that, to give them more success in America, especially when the sake consumption was falling off in Japan was really meaningful to me. And probably the most, I mean, I haven't really felt that way about anything else.
0: Because marketing is really based on the art of standing out and Japanese culture is kind of the art of blending in.
1: Exactly. And they don't, You know, I think it's, I'm sure that with any beverage, it's really challenging about how much you want the label to pop, you know, and you don't want to lose any authenticity on the label. But if you don't put any English on the label, you really don't deserve to be successful in a country that doesn't read Japanese, I think. And so just kind of helping to find that right balance, or even in my role at Sushi Samba of talking to the consumers every night and kind of seeing how people remembered what they were drinking. And this is before people had camera phones. And so like now, you know, someone will show me their iPhone and say, okay, I drank this last night. I really liked it. But back then people would say, oh, you know, I had this sake. I, I really loved it. I think it was in a brown bottle with Japanese writing. Do you have something like that? And um, it really gave me a lot of ideas and really made me want to take, take it further or do something where I could be more involved.
0: I have an incredible amount of difficulty with that. I'm like, it was the slaying dragon wandering... You know, scholar, poetry, writer by the water. Like, I I can't remember any of the... I'm really bad with it.
1: Right, and most people are. And I think the camera phones have been really impactful in getting people to remember what they're drinking. And even, I mean, even the wine apps are really sake-friendly. And so I think think that's changing a lot. But back then, it was really... uh, Even if someone would spend... $50 on a bottle of sake in a restaurant, which is a lot when you can get a carafe of hot sake for $10 and nobody was sold on cold sake. Even if by some chance someone did that, the chances of them ordering that bottle again were almost zero.
0: Oh, so if you find the needle in the haystack, you're probably never going to see it again. Exactly. So what did you find worked for you in terms of connecting with gas?
1: You know, I think that the name, even though it is hard to remember the, you know, demon, dragon, wandering. It's still easier than remembering, you know, a very long 10 syllable Japanese word. And so I think the English names do really help. Um, And I think that coming up with a tagline that people remember the sake by is very helpful. And I think that some people, sometimes people overthink it and they want to really get detailed about rice polishing and yeast. And then they wake up the next morning and they're like, I don't remember anything last night. I had a bottle of sake. And so I just always try to remember that people are out drinking, having a good time, and give them something very concise.
0: I mean, do people say, like, oh, I only drink 75% polish or more?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes people say things like that, or they say, I only drink sake from this region in Japan. And I think that's fine. Um, I don't know anyone who really drinks a lot of sake who would say that, but I think that people love to sound like they know what they're talking about and with anything. And so maybe they'll relate it to another beverage that they know about and say things like that.
0: Do you find that there is a kind of tendency among American consumers to relate it to either beer or wine?
1: I think people relate it to wine a lot. I, I would prefer that to spirits, which I think because people have done drink sake in a shot glass and maybe it looks clear. And so it reminds them more of a spirit than a wine they'll assume it's very high in alcohol. So I I prefer people to compare it to wine, but it's really, I think, easiest to understand if people compare it to beer because it is brewed.
0: So how does that affect what it is? I mean, how is the difference between just a wine fermentation and a brewed fermentation? How is that different?
1: Well, I think the most important thing at the consumer level for remembering that sake is brewed like beer instead of fermented like wine is that When you smell, when you taste a glass of wine, I think the first thing that people think about is where it's from. And with beer, it's much more about what style the beer is made in. And so with sake, like beer, it's much more about production rather than the ingredients.
0: Oh, I see. So maybe it's less easy to recognize the regionality.
1: Yes, um, there certainly is regionality, and you know, as uh, sake is 80% water, so the mineral composition of the water does really affect the texture and the overall minerality of the sake. But there are many prefectures with very similar types of water that could be very far away from each other.
0: The only sake instruction I ever had was an older Japanese gentleman explained it to me that really good sake should taste like shimmering water. And then it turns out that you know, water is actually a big part of it, right? Like the kind of water.
1: Yes. Water is a huge part of it. And, um, some people do say that really good sake should taste like water, but I think that that sounds more like vodka marketing, you know, where sure. if you filter it's something 10 times, times yeah, yeah. And it tastes like nothing. Like I was trying to recommend a sake for a wine collector once, and he was getting really frustrated because I, I think I kept starting off with this is a really interesting sake because blah, 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 blah. And he would say, I don't want anything interesting. I want something that I forget about as soon as I drink it. And it's very hard to find that in an expensive bottle of sake. So I think that sake should be very easy drinking. And I, I see it, I mean, I think what the gentleman was probably trying to convey is sake is clean and refreshing. And so many times, both in restaurants and in retail stores, you know, sake is at the end of the wine list, or it's, next to the liqueurs and um the sweet wines and so people have this idea that sake is sweet and very boozy and so it's definitely not that you know I'd much rather see sake near the rosés in a wine list or in a retail store because I think that that is you know it's summertime it's hot outside have a crisp refreshing glass of sake but I think that I think that it's still selling it short saying it should taste like water
0: because a lot of times they taste fruity right
1: yes yeah F- fruitiness is a very Big characteristic of sake, and I think you know that there are certain people who are working on sake flavor wheels and aroma wheels, and I think that it is very helpful. And we're we're coming up with one as well. And I think that you know it's definitely a different spectrum of fruit notes. You tend to find a lot of banana and melon and lychee and green apple and grapefruit and um, certain. You know, I think that banana is not necessarily the best thing to say when you're tasting wine, but with sake it can be very good. So I think that. The fruit notes are easier to understand for people.
0: Those fruit notes sort of correspond to certain styles or certain production?
1: Yes. In general, the more ginjo and daiginjo styles of sake tend to be more fruity and floral. And junmai as a style tends to be a little more rustic and earthy.
0: I see. And so you're at the restaurant. And what are some of the other challenges to just getting this beverage in front of consumers during the era of the cosmopolitan being super popular?
1: Well, I think that the challenges are volume of portion. People have no idea how to serve sake. And so I think that it has to be in the context of people drinking Cosmopolitans and people drinking glasses of wine. So if you're serving a two and a half ounce glass of sake, it's gonna be very hard to convince that person to get a second glass when they're looking at someone having a five ounce Cosmopolitan or a five ounce glass of Chardonnay. So I think size of the glass I think serving it in a glass that is big enough so that people can swirl it and and see the sake, experience the sake as it evolves in the glass, is very important.
0: Oh, is that true? Because a lot of times I feel like I'm served in little glasses sake.
1: Yes, and um, that is definitely more of a cultural thing. You know, I think pouring for someone else is a huge expression of generosity and hospitality, and you know, it's. As far as manners go, if you're sitting next to someone and and they have an empty glass, you're really looked at as being very rude. And the more times you can refill someone's glass, I think the more of an expression of hospitality it is. So that is really a lot to do with the small glass. But sake does certainly open up in the glass, especially Junmai sakes that are a little more layered and do take a little more time to express themselves. And I think that psychologically, too, if people are drinking a sake in a wine glass, it makes them take it a little more seriously already.
0: That I certainly believe. I mean, I've seen that with champagne even. Yeah,
1: definitely. Where
0: people left the flute, went to the tulip, and started thinking about it more as a serious wine. Right. So what about the carafe? Because a lot of times when I go to restaurants, I see people pour into a carafe and then pour into glasses. Does that help with the sake taste?
1: I think it can help in terms of aerating the sake. You know, I think that some sakes, the more... You know, some sake producers tell me that they really like to have their sake with a bottle that's been half empty for a while because the more air that's in the bottle, the more expressive the sake is. And so oh, interesting. some sommeliers even like to decant sake. But other than for that reason, I think the carafe is more of, you know, for looks.
0: Oh, okay. So it's more of about a show. Yeah. And then what about rotation? I feel like it's a little different than wine in terms of the evolution in the bottle.
1: Yes, it definitely is. You know, with wine, there's usually a moment where people realize that this bottle has been open for too long and they, they should get rid of it. And with sake, that is there's much more of a gray area. Um, I have bottles of sake that have been open in my fridge for six months. And I, I mean, I keep them for cooking, but I also taste them to see how they're changing. And um, it will Yeah, but
0: you're super into sake. Right. Uh, right. Like right.
1: You're... I mean, and hopefully if you buy a bottle of sake, you won't need six months to drink it. But... Um, You know, it doesn't all of a sudden taste like vinegar. And so I would say that for if you're drinking at home, I would say that for three weeks, you can expect the bottle to deteriorate very little. And there are the more fruity and floral a sake is, the quicker it will deteriorate. So um, but I think for a couple weeks, you really have time. And especially if you're drinking at home and you're not charging people by the glass. I think in a restaurant, 10 days for Daiginjo and two weeks and maybe a little two and a half weeks for Junmai, is appropriate,
0: but what about rotation of bottles that haven't been opened? I mean, sometimes I feel like there's an expiration date or something.
1: Yes, so we put a we put a born on date, a bottling date on our bottles, and when there is a date on the bottle, it's uh, generally a born on date, and so that's when that's a shipping date of when the product has, has left Japan. And um, since these are products for export, they're not sitting in a store in Japan and then being shipped to the U.S. So it's 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 really when it's when it's leaving the brewery, and It's very difficult to give a clear answer on that, but we would say, I I generally tell our distributors 18 months. And um, so it is a brewed beverage. So like beer, you want to rotate it. And uh, we do a lot of training with our warehouses that we work with on first in, first out. But I think that it's one of the more misunderstood things about sake. People see the bottles and they're beautiful and they really want to hang on to them and wait for a special occasion. And you should really drink it quickly and then you can use the empty bottle as a vase or something.
0: Because with beer, if I got in a case of beer, I understand that I'm supposed to drink that pretty quick unless it's a really special, obscure kind of beer that gets better with bottle age, right?
1: Exactly. And even those bottles, probably you would assume that they've been bottle aged already for you. So Yeah. So I I think there's almost, there's very little sake where you would buy it and say that you want to lay it down for a while. Although there are always exceptions to the rule.
0: Do you... Have experience with those kind of more aged styles?
1: Yeah, we do. We have a couple of sakes in our portfolio that are aged. And um, aged sake is a very, very small category in Japan. But I think it's something that since sake consumption has dropped off so much in Japan, and it's definitely on its way back now, but five years ago, It was really kind of people were bored with sake as far as people in big cities, you know, they'd been watching their grandparents drink sake and they were much more interested in what was happening in the Western world beverage wise. And so a lot of the experimental styles, I think, have been helpful in getting people excited about sake again. And so if you go to sake bars in Japan, you will generally find some kind of funky age sake. And, um, and I say funky because it genera- it's, it's a very people were still they're still kind of figuring out how to make the aged sake production is getting better all the time. And so I think that um, some of them are great and I think that they can really be very interesting. And if you have a Japanese restaurant, I think it makes a lot more sense to serve an aged sake as an after dinner drink than all of a sudden giving someone a glass of port that has nothing to do conceptually with the restaurant. And so I think it really has a place in dining.
0: But what would be the flavor signatures between an aged style and a fresher style?
1: You would generally select a more savory or umami-rich sake to age. And so those characteristics, like the mushroom and the savoriness, the salinity of the sake would come out. You know, generally a little more of a nutty, definitely more texture, more viscosity.
0: Sometimes there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, bitterness to sake. Do you find more textural elements to some of the age styles?
1: Yes, definitely. It does become oxidative in style. I mean, with sake, because, you know, with this Maillard reaction, if there is glucose and starch present, then oxidation happens in the bottle without any oxygen exposure. And so that oxidative style does give a lot more texture to the sake.
0: And what's the percentage in terms of sake production that which is determined to be for an age style? I mean, what's the percentage of age sake? The
1: market? Very, very little. I would say still less than
0: 1%. Oh, really? That little? Yes. How many sake breweries are there in total?
1: Some people say 1,200 and some people say 1,000. I was just in Japan a couple months ago and I was hearing 1,000 a lot more as far as actively producing. In Japan? Yes.
0: And then how much of that is exported?
1: You know, it's still a really, really small percent. I was talking to one of our producers the other day who says that they export 18% of their sake. And that was a staggeringly high percentage. So, I mean, I would but, but as far as number of producers, I would say that probably about 300, a little over 300 producers are exporting to the U S.
0: So it's about a third of the, yeah. the amount of Japanese producers. There. Yes. And are people making sake in other countries?
1: Yeah, they are. Um, there's a lot of craft breweries emerging in the U S some in Canada, Norway, Australia,
0: Are those mostly Japanese expats?
1: No, they are very rarely. Well, I wouldn't say very rarely, but mostly not Japanese expats. Um, There are a couple of large Japanese producers who do have facilities in the U.S., but um, for the most part, they're people who have studied sake and become passionate about them. A lot of times they're beer geeks. Um, You know, there's one really interesting place in Minnesota that's actually a brew pub, where it's a sake brewery and an izakaya restaurant and they serve all their sake unpasteurized on draft and that's that's pretty cool because it's it's something it's a destination but um it's it's definitely challenging to to make the same kind of sake outside of Japan.
0: Oh okay, so it's kind of like that new world old world thing for wine.
1: Yes. Um it's very difficult to grow Japanese sake rice outside of Japan, although there is some um, very good Japanese sake rice coming out of Northern California right now. And also the water is challenging. I mean, I think that Japan for the most part, their water is very ideal for making sake as far as having the right minerals. And there's a lot of filtration that needs to be done to the water in most cases outside of Japan.
0: Cause a lot of that's probably melted ice water in Japan. Right. 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 So, so kind of purity that you maybe wouldn't find if it were lake water.
1: Exactly. Or from a reservoir.
0: Do you find differences in water in Japan, like in terms of composite makeup of the water?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I was just in Hiroshima this year, and it's very interesting because they say that the birth of ginjo sake is in Hiroshima, where people talk about the birth of sake being in Kyoto, and that's a pretty well-known idea. And uh, But the water in Kyoto is, is higher in mineral content, and they using those same principles, it wasn't possible to make sake in Hiroshima because the water is so soft so figuring out how to do this very cold long fermentation which is associated with making ginjo um, it's cold enough so that these aromatic compounds are produced and they don't evaporate so that style people say started in Hiroshima very different water
0: okay so kind of actually leading to a whole different style of sake yes so back to the restaurant side how does sake pair with food or is it supposed to pair with food
1: It is supposed to pair with food, and I think it's challenging to think of from a wine perspective because sake doesn't have tannins, and it doesn't have tartaric acid, and it's so low in malic acid. So thinking about cutting through a flavor or a texture or a level of fat content in food is not as helpful when you're thinking about a sake pairing. Sake is much more about harmonizing with flavor, and it can quiet strong flavors and enhance quiet ones. Like in Japan, we eat a lot of what People might consider fishy fish a lot of mackerel and sardine, and paired with the right sake, it tones down the silver skin quality of the fish, but you still get all the flavor and umami. And it does the same thing for you know um, shishito peppers and there's a Japanese vegetable that's very similar to broccoli rabe called nanohana, and um, you could have something like that, which is a pretty peppery vegetable and. If it's in a delicate dashi broth, it might really overwhelm the broth if you eat it alone. But with the right sake, it soothes those green flavors and brings out the umami. So I think it's a very different, you know, I think people understand how having wine with food can elevate your food experience, but I think they still think about having sake with food like, oh, I'm having sushi, so I should order some sake because it's the right thing to do instead of how is this making my food taste better. And um, I think... Luckily, we've had a lot of great chefs and really passionate sommeliers get behind it and incorporate sake in wine pairings in fine dining restaurants. And I think that when that happens, it's great because people, most people walk out of that dinner saying, wow, I never would have ordered a glass of sake. But when that appeared with the caviar or whatever they're pairing it with, it really, it really blew my mind. It was this eye-opening experience. And so, unfortunately, that's not a very... A, I mean that's not the most realistic way to grow a category so um, sure. we rely on a lot of sushi right. bar. <laughs> we rely on a lot of other channels as well but I think that slowly people are understanding how sake can change a dining experience
0: and what did you find with the interaction of sake and sushi i mean how did that work out for you
1: well I think it's challenging because when you eat sushi you're having a lot of different fish and you're, you're generally having less beverages and so having the perfect beverage that's going to pair with Fishy mackerel and sweet eel and fatty, salty salmon is really challenging. And I tend to drink a lot of very refreshing beverages when I'm having sushi, like you know, beer beer. and crisp, high-acid wines or champagne. And I think that there are sakes that are amazing with sushi. And you know, one restaurant that does something really interesting is Sushi Nakazawa in the West Village, where they have the sushi in flights. And so for their tuna flight, they'll pick a sake or a wine pairing. And then for, you know, the roe flight, they'll pick another sake or wine pairing. And so I think that is more manageable. But we never really, as a company, we never recommend sake with sushi because I don't know, it's not, people aren't going to go home and have this light bulb moment of, oh my God, that California roll was so good with the sake. And sushi is too big of a category to say, and sake is too big of a category.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So the point where a lot of people would think about having sake is maybe not the best introduction to it. Like going to that sushi restaurant to Westerners thinking like, oh, here we are at the Japanese place. Let's get some sake to be in theme that may not be as rewarding and may not turn me on to sake like going to a different kind of food would.
1: Well, I think it'll still be really good, but it won't be it won't really get someone to understand the philosophy behind pairing sake with food.
0: And what about temperature? I feel like sake is served at all kinds of different temperatures.
1: Yes. So we the short answer is premium sake should be consumed cold. But then you go to Japan and you see warm sake everywhere. And um, the reason that we try to push cold sake so much is that people drink sake really hot in 99% of scenarios in the U.S. And if you get your sake and it's in that white ceramic carafe and it's hotter than a cup of coffee it's not going to taste very good. Um, you know, the alcohol is going to be really at the forefront structurally. You know, it's going to be very watery in the mid-palate. It's very hot. And there's too much, the way that it comes out of a hot sake machine, you know, and the length of time it takes to get at the table, you know, it's u- usually not the temperature it was intended to be by the time you're drinking it. So I like to play around with the spectrum between room temperature and chilled a lot more because I think that when you taste a sake at room temperature that has the potential to be served warm, you start to understand. Um, The more savory and rustic sakes become more aromatically round and expansive when they're at room temperature, and even more so when they're lukewarm or a little warmer than that. But I think it's a good way to to start understanding why you would drink certain sakes not chilled. And uh, the more fruity, floral, pristine sakes, I think almost everyone would agree, are better chilled.
0: So there, there's a range of different sakis that are more suitable to different temperatures.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: At the same time, the same sake will taste different at different temperatures. Yes. Does personal preference play a little bit into that? Like, you know, how certain people prefer their sense super cold and some people like it, you know, less cold.
1: And... Oh, absolutely. I think people worry a lot about doing it wrong with sake. And it I, really... I certainly do. You shouldn't. I mean... No, but I mean, yeah.
0: seriously, I think I can certainly relate to that. Because, I, I, you know, it seems like such a formal culture with so many rules. And the minute that you want to return the bow and you know you're screwing it up, you know, I feel that same sensation with right. trying to order sake.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's really meant to be more of a playful beverage. I was with the president of a brewery that I used to work with, and he came to the U.S., and he wanted everyone to squeeze a lemon into their sake right when we started and it was this really expensive sake and we all just looked at him like why would we do this especially in front of you and he he just thought it would be fun to try it alone and then try it with lemon and so that's kind of extreme but I think that you should you know try if you're drinking sake at home you know maybe even try the bottle at room temperature before you stick it in the fridge and then see how you like it compared to chilled and then maybe find somewhere in the middle
0: so what happens for you after you leave the restaurant? You're there three and a half years, and then what goes on next?
1: I was doing a lot of promotional, uh, sake promotional things with with different print and TV publications and networks. and I, podcasts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was contacted by Southern Wine and Spirits um, by Jim Allen, who was the vice president of the wine division in New York at that time. And I had never, I mean, I ordered stuff from Southern Wine Spirits, but I had never really even thought about going into the distribution side. And I didn't really have a plan for what to do next, but I'd kind of done everything that you could do at the restaurant that I was working at. And so I was thinking about making a change and um, it seemed like a really good opportunity. They were interested in getting becoming a larger player in, in the sake game. And they had a couple big companies and they wanted to bring in more. And instead of, you know, they... Have so many things to do, and so the idea of having someone who knows about sake to come in and choose for them was really appealing. And so it was great for me because I got to kind of decide what to bring in, kind of help figure out pricing, figure out different ways to incentivize and motivate a sales force. And I learned a lot. I ended up working with Southern Wine and Spirits for six years, and uh, mostly in New York. And I got to interact with a lot of different markets and. It was a big success for the company and they ended up creating a similar role in a lot of different markets. So it was, it was really, it was a great experience and, um, I really learned a lot.
0: At a young age. Yes. Seems like it. Seems like consistently you've had a a fair amount of responsibility at a young age.
1: Yes. And
0: it felt like you kind of hit the niche of what was needed in the market. Like right about that time that people said like, oh, younger sommeliers, let's put them in the press. You were there with the sake knowledge as a young female.
1: Yeah, I feel very lucky. Um, it was definitely a lot of being in the right place at the right time. And um, well, I mean,
0: I wasn't—I I wasn't trying to say that. You know, I wasn't trying to take away from your achievement.
1: Oh no, not but, at all. i I feel very—I feel very lucky that people were willing to to even consider that. You know, and I think that working for a company like Southern Minded Spirits, where it is very old school in in the way that they do business, and for them to really take sake seriously was, I. I I was really surprised, I guess. And um and then at Sushi Samba, you know, kind of coming in when they were growing so aggressively as a restaurant group and being able to kind of being the person with the most experience after just a couple of years and being the first candidate to send to new projects was was great. And so it was um it was definitely a lot of experience in a really short amount of time.
0: And at the same time, it sounds like the export category was growing while the domestic sake market in Japan was kind of stagnant or sinking
1: yes the export channel has grown pretty consistently definitely around you know 2009 it was it was hit pretty hard but right now i mean right now the export category and sake export of the u.s is growing about three percent which is good and i think it's it's on an upswing again
0: what did you learn on the distribution side i mean what was that like
1: well it was it was interesting. It had a lot of challenges. I've only really had experience with the New York market and Southern Wine and Spirits in New York is um, the sales force is a unionized. And so it was my first time working with, with unions, um, which are not without their challenges. You know, I representing a portfolio that was so big was also a really great learning experience. I mean, learning how it certainly made me not a snob at all. You know, I think that it's very, every, every type of customer is very important. And, and I would see how much sake we were selling in these bulletproof liquor stores in the Bronx. And it would really, um, I mean, we really needed that business. And to some suppliers, we needed that business a lot more than a sake by the glass at a fine dining French restaurant that maybe yielded, you know, one case a month so understanding how to please a lot of different importers was great and um you know really understanding how to manage profitability and you know, how to try to multiply myself as much as possible was great but I think I think I had kind of gotten to the point where I was ready to make another move and um working for an importer was something that I had thought about for a while and um there weren't really a lot of companies that would have been the right fit for me in the sake world. I mean, there are a lot of very Japanese companies and I think talking about the culture of fitting in, especially with females, you know, I was, uh, I don't know if that would have been a, a match made in heaven. I'm kind of um, opinionated. And I think that it's that like, understanding that there's the right time and the right place to speak your mind is not something that I was really taught. And so that didn't seem like a, uh, sustainable idea and um i'd always i'd always really admired vine connections i used to purchase a lot of sake from them on the restaurant side and um i it's a very small company and so i knew the owners pretty well and so we had been kind of talking about what my next move would be for a couple years and um it was it was a long long-term goal idea that i would come and work for them and i and you know, due to timing, we would kind of go through these periods where I'd say, well, you know, I'm really not ready. And they weren't ready. And then finally, everything fell into place. So I've, um, I joined Vine Connections in January of 2014. So it's been a year and a half now.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. So what's the difference between working for one portfolio as opposed to working for a number of different supplier portfolios put together?
1: It's very different. You know, we're in all 50 states and several provinces of Canada. So really, understanding how to get things done without being there physically was a big challenge for me because I'm kind of a control freak. And so the idea of just trusting other people to do things and not being able to jump in the car, jump on the subway and go fix uh, sort of put out a fire up myself was, was a big transition. And, um, we work with small to medium sized distributors all through the country. And so that culture is very different. It's less aggressive and it's it can be great because I think that you work with a lot of really passionate fine wine people. But working with a product that is fragile like sake and understanding how to do that in the most um, efficient ways possible and not having to destroy a lot of product because it's getting old and making sure that people who might have a huge passion for selling burgundy but aren't haven't fallen in love with sake are actually thinking about sake can be hard. But overall, they're all challenges that I, I really love right now.
0: What about in the market? I mean, now that you see the whole country and also Canada, like you said, how do those different areas vary? I mean, what are strong sake markets? What are markets that I might not expect to be strong sake markets?
1: I am surprised all the time. And probably, I mean, growing up on the West, on, in LA and then moving to New York, I really didn't have a lot of experience with the middle of the country. And I probably pre-judged a lot of areas in the middle of the country. And, um, you know, in our top 10 markets are Montana and Utah is a really strong market for us. We do a ton of business in Missouri, especially, you know, St. Louis and Kansas City. And so there are places everywhere that just shock me. Um, Colorado is amazing. Texas is our number two sake market in the country. And it's really exciting to see how people are drinking sake. You know, there's this interesting contingency of conspicuous consumption that i'm seeing a lot with pro athletes and djs and people who like those names like the demon dragon wandering poet and uh and can remember them and they're kind of a status symbol i've seen you know there are so the laws in new york make it really challenging to do a lot to have a lot of retailers who do interesting pairings with food when in the store but um throughout the country Seeing so many retailers that are attached to cheese shops, um, we've been doing some really great sake and cheese programs throughout the country in places like, you know, Michigan that I never would have thought to be a more sophisticated sake market than New York. So it's really exciting.
0: That's interesting that the fact that New York retailers can't sell or offer food in the shop means that categories like sake and probably also categories like sherry have a harder time at the tasting, the retail level.
1: Absolutely categories like so, sherry i think is very similar to sake in, in terms of people think they know what it is and they think they don't like it and um they, they think of it as this very singular category and reintroducing people to those categories are so challenging unless you can get it in someone's glass so
0: have you seen that be generational have you seen younger people more interested into it in the way that we hear about with wine all the time or is it less of a less of a generational consumer drive
1: yeah, I think it is generational. And I think the craft beer movement has really helped sake and, and New York makes that very challenging as well, since you can't sell sake and beer in the, in the same store. But there are so many places throughout the country where people are really curious about trying craft beer and it's and not in a cost prohibitive way. You know, people are understanding the value of spending $20 on a large format beer and then they want to try these sakes and they're having a lot of fun. So I think that is that is definitely, we're seeing a younger demographic with that.
0: So when you see that a state lose a lot of sake and you go out there, is it usually like a couple of key retailers and a couple of key restaurants or is it a bigger scene than that sometimes? Or how does it usually work out?
1: It's usually a bigger scene than that. I mean, I'm just thinking I was in, I was in Western and central Massachusetts a couple of weeks ago in Northampton and Sturbridge and, um, those, I, I really was not expecting much from my trip. But um, in Northampton, you know, there's one really great retailer that is a specialty food store that has a huge sake program. And then, and as a result, all these local restaurants are serving, experimenting with sake. And I had dinner at a French restaurant. And they said, oh, yeah, we did a sake dinner here um, a couple months ago. And I never would have thought that. So it's, it's really interesting.
0: And have you seen it wax and wane with sommelier culture in the period of time that you've been selling in the wholesale side?
1: I don't think it's happened in a big way in the sommelier culture yet. I mean, I think that sherry has definitely happened in a big way, but I don't think, I talk to too many wine people who say, yeah, I really don't, you know, sake. I just don't really get sake. And so I, I think it's very rare to find, for, to say, I, I, I can't identify anywhere in the country where it's really exploded in the sommelier culture. I find
0: it challenging at retail, too. Like, I find it challenging to go to most shops and find someone that can tell me much about the product. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there's probably one or two specialty shops where the people are super passionate about it and all they sell is sake, maybe. Or, But I, I usually find it hard to find someone to tell me.
1: It is really hard. I mean, I go to retail stores, and I feel like people want me to leave as soon as possible, as soon as I ask where the sake section is sometimes. And I think it's definitely an area where people need a lot of handholding. And I think even stores that are a lot of fine wine stores, you know, don't like to use shelf talkers. They say, you know, we've tried everything that's on the shelf here, so we'll tell you about it, but they'll still want to use sake shelf talkers because they're like, well, we tried these, but it's all a blur to me now and I can't find my notes. So I think people need a lot of handholding. And I think that a lot of people in retail feel like they need to understand more than they, than they really do about sake in order to sell it. Where if you can just say, everyone has a different way of selling it. You know, some people say, oh, you're a, you like dark beers, you should drink this sake. You're a, you know, Oregon Pinot Noir drinker, you should drink this sake. Or some people will say, oh, some people just like to describe them like wine. You know, this is white peach and grapefruit and, you know, peppery finish. And I think those are all great. But I think that None of those really require saying, well, you know, the rice polishing mill actually looks like this, and you can put 700 kilograms of rice in at one time or anything really technical that people feel like they have to get before they can introduce someone to sake.
0: Besides the fact that you speak Japanese and you can read the label, what has worked for you as a handle to tell one sake apart from another? I mean, do you focus more on the style of the sake, which sometimes seem a little fluid, like you can? Sometimes when we've talked about sake, you've been like, oh, well, this is a Jumai that could also be, some could call it a a Daigenjo or it's on the border. Like with, you know, German wines, often like this, like, oh, it could have been a cabinet, but we called it a Spatelisa, you know, that kind of thing. But how is it that you remember? I find, not to sound like a complete idiot, but I guess I am on this subject, but I have a hard time keeping the handles or the categories straight to remember for the next time. What's easy for you to do this?
1: Well, I think it's really hard. And I think that that is where we lose a lot of the Somme community because I think that the empowering thing about studying wine, with exception of some German wines and other more challenging regions, I think that the more you study a region, the more you can generalize what's in the bottle before you open it. And if you look at the bottle and you see these words, you can say, well, I know that vineyard is like this. I know that that was a difficult vintage. I know this. And so with sake, it's far less you really have to know the producer, and I think it's really uh, important for importers to to have really good tasting notes and to have information on the back label and to really give information to um, their distributors and to consumers because it's not. I mean, you could taste two Junmai Ginjos that couldn't be more different, and that one of them could taste so much more like a honjozo, you know. And so, it's very difficult to generalize by style. I mean, I do often say that, generally speaking, Junmai tends to be more rustic and earthy. Ginjo tends to be more fruity. Dai Ginjo tends to be more floral and herbaceous. But there are countless exceptions to the rule. So in that way, I think it's just you have to rely on what information is provided on the bottle or by the producer a lot of the time.
0: So you really kind of have to be opening bottles. Yes. You can't, you know, because it doesn't link to regionality, like you said, so much as one does. You can't make general assumptions that kind of in a lot of ways probably make the wine business work, you know, where you can kind of project what the taste will be, tell it to someone convincingly, and then they go and buy that bottle because, you know, not all the staff tries every bottle. Exactly. But in this case, it's more difficult if you don't directly try it.
1: Right. And we put, I mean, we put tasting notes on our back labels and I think they help a lot, especially in a restaurant because I think... You know, if a server can just sneak a peek at the back label before they bring it to table, all of a sudden they'll sound really knowledgeable and get a better tip. So I think that that helps a lot. But it is, you have to taste a lot of sake to feel comfortable with it.
0: Are there special terms or certain terms that I should be thinking about if I approach sake? You know, in the world of wine, there's terroir is an important term, but so is reserva. You know, are there terms for sake that are common terms that I might not know?
1: In the world of premium sake, and 73.8% of sake that's produced in Japan is not premium. And so the big difference between, well, there's two big differences between premium and not premium. One of them could be the polishing of the rice, and another could be the addition of neutral spirit distilled alcohol to the sake. So premium sake cannot have more than 10% of the total weight of rice used of alcohol added. And most premium sake is polished to at least 70%. So within that world of premium sake, everything is either junmai or not junmai. So when you see the word junmai on a label, whether it's junmai, junmai ginjo, junmai daiginjo, it means pure rice sake that's in the premium category. And if you see just ginjo or daiginjo, it is not pure rice sake. And I think the way that's translated in English, often people feel like pure rice sake is superior. but uh, I would think that. But it's really a stylistic difference. Um the reason that you would add alcohol at the premium level, um it's not enough to extend the yield of the sake and it's not enough to increase the alcohol content. And it does it's added right before pressing, so it doesn't fortify the alcohol. What it does is there are certain, you know, aromatic compounds that are produced during fermentation that aren't water soluble. So when you add that little bit of alcohol, it opens up those aromatics and it lightens the overall impact of the sake. So we call or I call non jinmai sakes like session sakes a lot of the time because you can, you know, they don't weigh down your palate. They're really refreshing and you can drink a lot of them. And they tend to show better initially because you get, you really understand the sake right away. And so it's kind of like putting a little water in your scotch. Like it makes, it releases the fragrances. It makes it a little easier to drink. And um, often some of the most expensive sakes are you often see daiginjos that are more expensive than junmai daiginjos. And so it's not an inferior term, but I think the way it's translated, people say, oh, I only want the pure rice sake. So well,
0: That's interesting that by adding alcohol, you can make it seem lighter.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's almost always a sugarcane spirit distillate rather than a rice distillate. It's found to be more neutral, and it's, it's a little more cost-effective.
0: And what are other some key terms of sake connoisseurship that maybe I might see on a bottle and really not understand?
1: Well, one that you might see a lot lately that is a pretty small category in sake, but is very strongly represented in export are Yamaha and Kimoto. So Yamaha and Kimoto tend to be more uh, high acid sakes that have a little are more robust and sometimes have a little bit of gaminess to them. And they're pretty popular right now. Uh, Yamaha and Kimoto refer to a style of preparing the yeast starter where there's no lactic acid added. It's all natural lactic acid. And so there's a little more interaction with the environment and it can, like, a little more interaction. Even though there's no ambient yeast that's involved in fermentation, there is more exposure to wild yeast and bacteria in the environment. And it results in kind of a more of a rich, gamey, earthy sake. And so I think that for people who like bigger red wines, it can be easier to introduce that person to a Yamaha or Kimoto. And I, I've been seeing a, a lot of them. You know, most Japanese restaurants in New York will have a Yamaha or Kimoto section on the menu. So that would be one to remember. Another one that you might see a lot is genshu. Genshu means undiluted. So sake yeast can ferment to you know sixteen to twenty percent alcohol on average, and generally at that point it's diluted with water to bring it down to a more you know fourteen to sixteen percent percentage level. And again, she is undiluted, so they generally tend to be more high impact, really highly concentrated, almost have a candied texture. So those are also I think more approachable to someone who maybe doesn't get the subtlety of sake, or maybe they all start to taste the same after a while. Again, she was like a Punch in the face. And so, like a good one, but um, they're very intense. And also Nama, um, we're kind of at the end of the Nama season right now, but Nama, Nama means raw, and so it's unpasteurized sake. Sake, you know, doesn't have sulfites, and the way that sake is stabilized for a longer shelf life is by pasteurizing it. And the unpasteurized sakes are released, you know, at the end of the brewing season, so anywhere from late February to a couple months ago, would be when namazakes are released. And they do have a shorter shelf life, so probably about three to four months. And those can be very um, lactic in quality. You might get a tart yogurt, more green apple, very bright and fresh.
0: And sometimes cloudy in the bottle, right? Yes. A lot of times here we talk, uh, in wine, I mean for several years now, people have talked about filtering versus non-filtering. And now, over the last few years, people have become much more concerned with wine and yeast what kind of yeast it is is a common question are those kind of concerns that also come up in sake
1: yes well so people generally refer to unfiltered sake as cloudy sake and um so the term is nigori which is another good term to know so nigori is cloudy sake that still has some of the the sediment from fermentation in the liquid and um i So after fermentation, instead of completely separating the leaves from the liquid to have a clear liquid, some of the solids are allowed to escape in the liquid. The actual filtration step is a little later. Um, It's a charcoal-fining process where sake. most sake that we drink in the U.S. is clear and colorless, and sake actually comes out of the tank looking a little more like fresh pressed olive oil. Like There's definitely a pale lemon green color to the sake. And the charcoal-fining is done for many reasons. I mean, it does extend the shelf life, and um, it does also generally take the color out of sake. Um, and that is an optional process. And how much you charcoal find the sake is also very optional. And there's cert- there's a varying spectrum of opinions with producers on how much, if at all, to charcoal find the sake. And then as far as yeast that's used, there's not really sake being made with ambient yeast, it's at least not for export. It's too. At, uh, it's a very cold fermentation, you know, anywhere between generally around like five to eight degrees Celsius. And for premium sake, you know, around 40 days for fermentation. So it's very-
0: It's a long time. Yeah.
1: And it's too risky really to use ambient yeast. If you end up with a stop fermentation, it's a really big problem. And so, so yeast is generally, there are several strains of yeast released by the National Research Institute of Brewing, which all are known to behave in certain ways. And so most brewers will either take those yeasts and ferment with them or they'll create a descendant of that yeast that reflects more of more of the terroir of the brewery or maybe a locally produced descendant of the yeast but it really it is mainly that yeast and then there is a little bit of flower pollen yeast that's been used and so okay so there are some researchers that have found different flower pollen yeast that do behave like sake yeast and can withstand the same temperature fermentation and do create similar similar aromatic compounds and um I'm sure there's more out there. Um, I've had some climbing vine rosebud yeasts and sunflower yeasts and peach blossom.
0: Are those things you could blind taste if you taste it and you say, oh, this kind of yeast?
1: There are certain types of yeasts that are very, that are much easier to blind taste. The fruitiness in sake, you know, there there's a few different types of fruity aroma producing sake yeast and some are definitely more isoamylacetate, which is more banana, and then some are more ethyl caprate, which is more melon. And there's a lot of complexity past that. But I think it's definitely possible to smell a sake and say, oh, this is more of a banana style yeast, which would be, you know, more like yeast number nine, which is very commonly used for ginjo and daiginjo. And then more of the ethyl caprate style yeasts. And then the flower yeasts, I think are more challenging. Um, I mean, we work with one producer that uses this climbing vine rosebud yeast, and there's a bran note. Um, it's very complex, and it doesn't smell like flowers at all. So those are those are a little more challenging. But I think a lot of yeasts are easier to blind taste.
0: Maybe I'm just hanging out with the wrong people, but I feel like sometimes when we, I taste sake with people, they bring up the unami word a lot, which is maybe just a crutch word for Japanese food in general. Like, oh, it's got umami. But do you find that to be in sake?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um sake has more umami than any other any other beverage and I think people get really frustrated with it because you look at a diagram of the human tongue and you can see and not argue over what where, where sweet and salty and bitter and sour are and what is sweet versus salty. But umami is, you know, much more of this much more complex. And so, you know, sake has so many amino acids, much more amino acid content coming from the kin, which is the mold that converts the starch into sugar. And so that umami presence really does, there are higher levels in some sakes. And so there are certain ways to create umami in sake. You know, I think the simple way of saying it is that a growing kojiken mold on rice creates umami, but the more liberally applied kojikin will create more umami and so you can look at some grains of rice that have the mold grown on them and it looks like white frosting is coated the outside of the rice and some and some of them you can still see the rice and there's just flecks of white on the outside so that's for two very different types of sake um, the very this flecks of white on the outside of the rice would make a more pristine sake and you could you could make you know a more fruity floral sake and then having all of that white frosting on the outside of the rice would give you more umami, but it would also accelerate the fermentation a little bit more. And so you might have a more, along with having something that's more savory, you would have something more high acid. It would be hard to make a very fruity junmai ginjo with a very liberally applied kojikin rice.
0: What's the situation in Japan? I mean, uh, you said there's been a decline in, in sake sales. What's the understanding of sake in the market, in the place that it's made?
1: There certainly was a decline in sake sales, and I think it's it's bouncing back now as compared to five years ago. And I think that I think sake you were saying that sake labels are very intimidating, and I think that they were also intimidating for Japanese people who weren't in the industry, and it was just kind of overwhelming. And I think that there's been a difference in the marketing of sake within Japan to make it a little more approachable, and. Sake bars in Japan have become a little more appealing for younger people and, and a little more varied in the offerings. I mean, even though aged sake is such a small part of the market, if you go to a, a sake bar that would be recommended as having a big selection, you would always find aged sake. And so I think a focus on representing a lot of different styles, experimenting more with glassware and temperatures and making it more approachable it has, has really helped in Japan.
0: And sometimes I feel, like with Japanese crafts in general, like there's some sort of spiritual overtone, at least historically, with the kind of craft that and how it's come about. Are there ever ties into religious practice with sake and, and its history?
1: Well, sake consumption was definitely more of a ceremonial thing up until, I mean the ginjo sake boom and the premium sake boom didn't really happen until post-World War II. So until then, I mean, there was a lot of sake being produced, but it was more consumed to get intoxicated or in a ceremonial or religious situation. And uh, so I don't really, I honestly do not know if the carafe's have something to do with it. I think that a restaurant's decision to use a carafe would be you know, if they're pouring from a 1.8 liter bottle, which is a very smart way to serve sake, I think that, you know, like wine tasting better out of Magnum a lot of the time, sake tastes really good out of 1.8 liter bottle. And oh, I
0: didn't realize that because a lot of times I think the bigger bottles are the cheaper ones. I'm like, oh, that's the cooking sake.
1: Right. Um in Japan, if you go to a restaurant, everything is served in a 1.8 liter. And so our producers are always really trying to get us to bring in more 1.8 liters from them. And they're a tough sell because of what you said, I think. And um, But serving from a 1.8 liter in a restaurant is great. I think it's it's presentation-wise, it's, it's a little more dramatic and it tastes better in a 1.8 liter. And I think that it last longer shelf life wise so 300 milliliter will deteriorate much faster than 1.8 liter and um and then you can leave the bottle open for a while i mean the sake that we we choose to carry in our 1.8 liters we've really experimented and beat them up and left them open for a long time to see how they hold up and so they're, they're quite sturdy so in a situation like that i think carafes would be great
0: but nothing on the religious practice side
1: not that i'm aware of
0: The change in styles post-war, does it have to do with technological advance?
1: It does have to do with technological advances. You know, the vertical mill that polishes rice wasn't really created until the 1920s. And so before then, people were using foot pedaling and water mills to polish rice, which was effective, but it couldn't really polish rice to a high enough rate to be premium sake. And so the development of the vertical mill was a big big thing but after world war ii there was a bit of a quite a bit of a rice shortage and so overcoming that rice shortage really started the Ginjo boom and from what i understand you know it was it was pretty decadent to make sake with rice that you polished a lot when people couldn't even have rice to feed their families
0: i know you've been to sake brewers many times what's it like at a sake brewery as a general rule
1: well it's very clean any brewer will tell you that probably sixty five percent of their job is cleaning, and it's very um everyone does it. you know the brewmaster him or herself is is doing just as much cleaning as everyone else. Um, I just took brewers who were in the United States to um, a couple wineries in Oregon over the weekend when we were we were over there, and they they were asking you know how many how many people work at the winery or, and they were surprised at how few it was until they learned that they didn't do any cleaning and there was a whole different staff that did the cleaning, so it's really a lot of cleaning. You know, sake is generally produced in the coldest part of the winter. So it is, you do want to try to be very efficient during that time. Most breweries that we work with will brew two to three tanks a week. And so that would mean that two to three days a week at, you know, five, six in the morning, you start steaming a batch of rice and That is usually kind of the maximum, because at that point, after you, growing the koji kin on the rice takes about 48 hours. So you steam the rice, you take it into the koji room where you're growing the koji, and then um, you're leaving the other rice to wait, and then you move into the yeast starter. And so if you go to a sake brewery in the middle of the season, like in January, February, it's great because you'll see a lot of different yeast starter tanks at different stages, because a yeast starter can take two weeks if you add lactic acid or four weeks if you create natural lactic acid and then you can see fermentation tanks at all, all these different stages you know from day one to day 40 and then you can taste sake that was pressed that morning and, and sake that's been pressed a week ago and and really kind of understand the evolution
0: and so what's next for you personally I mean what are the next challenges for you to take on
1: I feel like I've still got a ways to go with before I feel like I've really got a handle on the job that I'm doing right now. It's such a this market, this we're changing all the time. And like in any industry, good people are so hard to find. And so, you know, it's it's having being in so many markets, it's so hard because we'll get someone really good up to speed and then someone else will grab them. And so managing that is still really challenging. So I I assume I'm gonna be kept busy with this for a while. And I really don't know. I feel like I've done the restaurant side, the distribution side, the importer side. I feel like it's a great luxury to be able to make a lot of decisions at the top as far as what we're going to do as a company without being the one to pay the bills for it. And so I, the idea of having my own importing company is not particularly appealing, especially with the fluctuating exchange rate. Like right now is a really profitable time to be selling sake, but it in the last five years, it really hasn't been. So yeah, that's a very good question.
0: It sounds like it's an industry segment where there's just not a lot of knowledgeable people around, or at least that speak English. Is that fair to say?
1: That is fair to say. And I think that there are a lot of, you know, it's so hard. And I don't, I don't know if it even makes sense to compare it to the wine community. I feel like there should be more collaboration. And, and I think that There's almost too much sake available in the United States right now and not enough knowledge to support it and not enough people who are handling it responsibly. So I think that there are enough people who are knowledgeable about sake and passionate about it. But I think that there could be a lot more synergy.
0: If I were to come out of this interview and think to myself, okay, so what that means is I need to get up to speed on sake. What should be my first steps to really pursue the subject?
1: I think you should buy some sake and drink it. I mean, I think that really is the best way to do it because I think that understanding production is great, but drinking a bottle of sake, if, if you had something that you were really excited about, you would probably tell someone about it. And I think people trust you and then they would want to try it too. You don't and know that, me very well, too, <laughs> clearly. I mean, I think that that's the best thing. And I think that there are so many great books. You know, we work with someone, John Gartner, who's written more more books on sake than anyone in English. And they're amazing and they're really a, a wonderful place to start. But I I think, you know, when people take his course, people come out of it saying the best part of it for that, the most educational part was the tasting, because being able to taste, you know, 100 sakes in three days is is great. And it gives you so much context. And so I think going to a restaurant that has a lot of sakes by the glass or has some sake flights or throwing a party where everyone brings a bottle of sake and you talk about it is really the way to get excited and to, to help <laughs>
0: Monica Samuels of Vine Connections, she suggests that you buy a bottle of sake. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Monica Samuels of Vine Connections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs...